Welcome to Maranatha Teaching Podcast. I'm your host, Femi Fenoyo. Happy New Year. The first two podcasts of this new year will be special episodes. We are going to look at two secrets for a perfect ending and an amazing beginning. Want to look at a secret ingredient for a perfect ending. There is no one <laughs> secret ingredient that fits everything, okay? But want to look at one tonight. Actually, this secret ingredient will be mentioned at the very end. You see, the truth is that life is full of endings. Life is full of endings. In fact, because life itself had a beginning, life itself will end. So life itself will end and life is full of ending. And the ending does not have to be sad. The end does not have to be scary. Unfortunately, it is often sad. It is often scary. Now, this secret ingredient will help us so that our ending is good, that the ending is something that is amazing, that is perfect. The ending sometimes is often invariably the beginning of something else. You know, when something ends, something ends begin. I mean, 2023 is going to end. But that is because 2024 is going to begin. Okay, you are in a room and you get out of the room. That is because you are going to enter into another room or you are going to enter into the passage or you are going to step out into the street. So oftentimes the end of something is the beginning of another thing. When somebody dies, that's the end of their life. But really is the beginning of, a, of another life. We need to understand that oftentimes the way we end here will often affect the way we begin there. Our life here and now impinges and have effect on our life in the next stage. So the way we come out of something often determines the way we'll enter into something, the way we leave this world, <laughs> whether we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then decide the way we are going to spend eternity. The way you live your academics, whether you got, you know, whether you were a serious student <laughs> or not a serious student, it will determine what happened to you after you leave university. You see, you see, the way we end something often determine the way we begin the next stage. So, having laid that foundation, I'm going to read from the book of First Samuel, chapter 17, verses 52 to 53. And the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until thou came to the valley and to the gate of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way of Shamram, even unto Gad and unto Ekron. And the children of Israel returned from chasing, chasing after the Philistines and they spoiled their tent. Okay, this is the popular story of David and Goliath. David has come on the scene. David has gone to fight Goliath. David has defeated Goliath. And then the people of Israel and Judah arose and chased the, the Philistines and defeated them. You can read that whole story in all the 58 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now, when you read the Bible, one of the things that strike you straight away is that the Philistines were number one enemies of the Israelites. They were often at war with the children of Israel. In fact, one of the reasons while the area of the Jew today is being called Palestine is because one of the Roman leader, let me just put it that way, actually wanted to spite the Israelites and they renamed 
their land by the name of their arch enemy, the Philistine. And that is the reason why that area is being called Palestine today, okay? It was not Palestine before. Anyway, that's just by the way. When you look at the Old Testament, the Philistines were often at war with the children of Israel. Remember Samson, when you read the story of Samson from the book of Judges, chapter 13 to chapter 16, Samson battled the Philistines. I'm, I'm looking at some example of this constant battle between the Philistines and the Syrian of Israel. And the Philistines were constant threat to Israel in the time of Samuel, in the time of Saul, and in the time of David. And you remember that story in 1 Samuel chapter 4, very, very important story when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. That was in 1 Samuel chapter 4. You remember that story? I mean, obviously, they eventually returned back to the children of Israel because it caused all sorts of havoc. So I just want you to see that there was this constant battle, this rivalry. It's not even rivalry, this war, this war, constant war between the children of Israel and the Philistines. So we have read then in this first Samuel chapter 17, we read the victory that David had over Goliath. But when you then go to 2 Samuel chapter 5 up to 2 Samuel chapter 8, you will see that David finally subdued the Philistines. He finally subdued them. Now, they still continue to exist, but they were no more from that point a threat to the children of Israel. They were more individual cities than a united people that will pose any threat to the children of Israel. So what I've said here is that number one, David defeated their champion. Goliath back in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And then finally in 2 Samuel chapter 5 to chapter 8, there was a series of war because the Philistines came back and came back again. But there was a series of war and David decisively conquered them, defeated them and subdued them. Now, in telling you the story of the Philistines and David have dragged in the name of Samson. Both of them ruled over Israel. Obviously, Samson ruled as one of the judges in time of the judges, whereas David ruled as their king in time of the kings, okay? Now, so both of them defended their nation against the Philistines. And there is a sense in which actually, when you look at the story of Samson, there's a sense in which Samson was, was much more endowed by God. We often talk a lot about David and rightly so, but I'm going to show you that when you look at the story of Samson, there's a sense in which Samson was actually much more endowed by God. Yet, Samson did less with the more that he was given. Now, he still did something. We cannot, we cannot dumb down. We cannot ignore what Samson achieved. But when you look at what God endowed this man with, he actually did quite less with the more that God gave him. Whereas David did more with relatively less than what God gave him. For example, we knew about Samson even before Samson was born. Before he was born, there was prophecy over his life. There was an assignment over his life. And please note that if a woman is barren in the scripture and that woman had a divine visitation leading to the birth of a child, okay, invariably that child will usually have or will usually be a messianic figure. And it is very, very important. For example, when you look at the story of Samuel, the story of Samson, the story of John the Baptist, the story of Isaac, all these children that were given birth to 
after a prolonged period of their mom being barren. But not only that, but that their birth was preceded by divine visitation to their mom. These children are often an invariably strong messianic figure that pre-shadowed the Messiah. And this is very, very important. Again, like I said, we're looking at something here that before his birth, there was a prophecy, there was an assignment over his life. Let's read that in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 13, verses 2 to 5. And there was a certain man of Zorah, or the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren. You see? And bear not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold, thou art barren, and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now look at this. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, nor eat any unclean things. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no reason shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. <laughs> now, obviously, there's a whole lot of direction we can go here. But here, I'm just looking at something. But really, we are going to David. Oftentimes, we see and we talk about David as a type of Christ in the Old Testament, and rightly so. But what we often ignore is the equally strong or maybe even stronger picture of Samson as a type of Christ. For example, in contrast to this spectacular beginning of Samson's life that we, we have read, we have no record of when or how David was born. We, we have no such record. The beginning of the life of David was not unique. Samson's birth was predicted, was prophesied, just like, I mean, the visit to the mom is almost like the visit of angel to Mary. And really, I can sit down here and dig more into the comparison between Jesus and something or Jesus and David. But we are moving into a different direction. But what I want us to see essentially is that something is as much a messianic figure as David was. Maybe, arguably, even a greater messianic figure. But we often ignore something as a type of Christ because of the failure of his life. Because something have very, very big moral failure in his life. But David also had moral failure. So it couldn't just be that. Okay, so to be clear, Samson had successful campaign against the Philistines. Samson got a lot of things done. Something, something battled and conquered the Philistines many, many times. And at his death, he brought the temple crashing down on top of about 3,000 men and women and the loss of the Philistines were there. And in his death, he killed this thousand and thousand of people. But on the other hand, there was some issue with something. He married a Philistine woman. Well, that was a failed marriage. Again, we're not going to go into that. And then he ended up in the lap of Delilah. Delilah, who eventually delivered him up to the Philistine. Now, some scholar believe that Delilah herself was a Philistine, but it is not clearly stated in the Bible. So we cannot be dogmatic about that. So number one, Samson married, first of all, Timna, a Philistine. That marriage failed for various reasons. And then he ended up in the lap of Delilah. But in between those, we also read that Samson went into a Philistine prostitute. And this was Samson's fall. In spite of his assignment, in spite of the anointing of God upon his life, in spite of the hand of God upon him to fight and destroy the Philistine. 
the failure and the downfall of Samson is that he pursued a much more personal connection with the Philistines. He pursued a much more personal connection with the Philistines. You know, as I was thinking about this teaching tonight and on Monday, one phrase that came to my heart was, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. Yes, Samson needed to have that war with the Philistines. He needs to have that conflict with the Philistines. Okay, he needed to have reason to fight them. But the problem here is that Samson went far ahead of that. Now, that's the problem. We are in the world. We are not of the world. Samson went far ahead of that and he was developing this more personal connection with the Philistines. And that was the problem that Samson had. Remember, we are talking about one secret ingredient that will be necessary for a successful ending and I dare say for a successful beginning. Now, Samson did repent and God forgave him. And in his death, like we said, he did exploit. And even in his death, the death of Samson actually foreshadowed the Messiah. He, but he repented too late. Samson could have and should have done a lot more for God. Samson could have and should have done a lot more for the children of Israel. But we thank God because he repented. At least he repented and God was still able to use him. Now, David also sinned. And the Bible recorded for us a couple of David's failure. Now, two of them are particularly documented to quite great detail. Obviously, the most common one is his adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Uriah being one of the lawyer, lawyer soldier for David. And we know how that ended. Uriah ended up being murdered by David himself. And the second big failure that the Bible recorded for us is when David decreed the counting of the children of Israel and Judah. And despite the fact that he was warned by his own army generals, and this eventually led to untimely death of 70,000 men. So David also sinned, but this is where we are going. <laughs> now we have said all this to get to there. But there was one secret about the life of David. David did not pursue or persist in his sin. David did not pursue or persist in his sin like what we saw in the life of Samson. When God sent prophet Nathan to David, Nathan confronted David with his sin. David could have got angry. David could have arrested the prophet, could have even killed the prophet. But what we saw here is that David quickly repented. We read that in 2 Samuel chapter 12. David was quick to repent when he was convicted of his sin. And we, we, when we read 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, and Psalm 51, the whole of Psalm 51, it documents for us, step by step, the heart-wrenching repentance of David. But let me just read 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. This was after Nathan had exposed David. 2 Samuel chapter 12, and David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. So, one of the great difference between David and Samson that determine the end of their story is their act of repentance. Their act of repentance. David was quick to repent. Unfortunately, Samson was slow to repent, but thank God he did repent. But the willingness and the quickness of David to repent was very, very important. And I want to tell you and I that this is a secret ingredient. As we end, 
one year, 2023, and we go into another year, 2024. This is a secret ingredient, the quickness for us to repent. Now, we have touched on this topic of repentance here many times. Let's read as we begin to round up. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 from the New American Standard Version. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And that mentioned a couple of things to us. Number one, it, it talked to us about a worldly sorrow. Number two, it talks to us about a godly sorrow. And then it talks to us about repentance that leads unto salvation. Now, let me put this picture on the screen. The red one is where Samson was for most of his time. He ignored God's conviction. And unfortunately, that led to very, very horrible things for him. Again, we thank God that that he repented. But when you look at the other side, that is where David was. David sinned. God convicted him. David acknowledged his sin. Okay, but when God convicts us of our sin, we have to be careful that we don't just have mere regret. Okay, that we just don't have mere regret. Now, what God expects us is that even if we have regret, that that regret have to lead on to godly sorrow because it is godly sorrow that brings us to repentance. Mere regret does not bring us to repentance. And repentance, it is when we truly repent that we can actually begin to see, like like something finally repented and the hand of God was mighty upon him. And I believe that this is one of the things that the Lord wants me to bring to myself and to you tonight. What is regret? Regret essentially is the pain we feel because of the possible consequences of our sin, as opposed to the fact that we have violated the character's and the commandment of God. You know, regret is we are not really we are not really sad. It's not about the fact that we have we have dishonored God. It's not about the fact that we have sinned against God. It's about me. It's about the fact that I've been caught. Regret is merely an uneasy feeling about the past or present rather than the desire to make things right with God or the desire to make things right with others in order to please God. And that is just mere regret. It's about me. It's about the fact that I've been caught. In other words, if I was not caught, I would not have regretted. Now, even that, even that, now that I'm caught, really, it's all about the fact that I'm caught. Rather than actually making things right, rather than actually being grieved that I have sinned against God. Now, regret can produce guilt, shame, resentment, despair, depression. It can produce all sorts of things. But what God wants to produce is repentance. What is true repentance? The Hebrew word for repentance is teshuva. And you can see the word in the middle of teshuva, and that is shove. And that is the root word that gives this word repentance is meaning. And shove actually means to return. The first time this word was used in the Bible is in the book of Genesis chapter 3 verse 19, where the Bible talks about the fact that Adam that God told Adam and said, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou returned unto the ground. And thou wilt return there, shove. And God said, And thus shalt thou return. So repentance, shove, means to return. It's a movement of one thing or place to another. It's to return, to turn back, to turn around, 
to repent is to return back to God. And obviously one popular example of that is the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. He said, I will go back to my father. And that is repentance. This is repentance. And it is the greatest secret ingredient of David's life. Now, repentance is not just for unbelievers. And this is very, very important. It is also for believers. First John chapter 1 from verse 8 to 10. Let's read that. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we have made him a liar and his word is not in us. And remember when the Lord Jesus wrote the letter to the church, the last letter was to the church in Laodicea. And the Lord Jesus said in verse 14a, he said unto the angel of the church of the Laodicean, right? This is the church. Verse 15 says, I know your work that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would not wet, cold, or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spool you out of my mouth. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and what? And repent. Be zealous therefore and repent. Now, this is the secret ingredient. If you and I are not repenting, remember, this is not talking about just being an unbeliever. If we are not repenting, then we are not going to change. Okay, repentance is God's precious gift of love to us. Repentance is one of God's greatest gift to us. If we can repent, then we can grow in grace. We can grow in our knowledge of God. We can mature and grow into Christ in all things. And we can experience the fullness of the glory of God. What do you and I need to repent for? You and I may need to repent as husbands, as wives. Because repentance is not always from bad to good. Repentance can be from good to the better to the best. Wherever I'm not perfectly fulfilling the purpose and the calling of God on my life, wherever I'm not perfectly fulfilling God's purpose, for whatever reason, then I need to repent. As husband, as wife, as parents, as children, as students, as Christians, as ministers, as church members, as professionals, have I been living my life perfectly the way God wanted me to live it? Has God been convicting me of any area of my life that needs to change? The way I spend my time, my thought, my emotion, my prayer life, my Bible study life, my fellowship attendance, my given, the sins and way that easily beset us. We can go on and on and on and on and on. These are some of the areas that the Holy Spirit has been putting a finger on. And until you and I repent, remember what we said, turn back and remember this repentance is a gift from God. And he said, if we repent, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. When you and I repent and say, God, I can see you are calling me. And this is a message for me. And when I admit and I acknowledge and truly repent and say, Lord, give me the strength to be able to do what I need to do. And then you and I will be able to start growing in our knowledge, growing in our in grace, in our knowledge of God, growing into Christ in all things, growing into a point where we can experience the glory of God to a greater extent. Somebody said that one of the definitions of insanity is if we continue to do something the same way and we expect a different result. So as you and I move into a new year, what do I need to repent of? In other words, what do I need to stop doing? What do I need to start doing? What do I need to do more of? And that is what repentance is all about. And as we do that, we will see the glory of God upon our lives. We sincerely invite you to check out our teachings on YouTube Maranatha Teaching Channel. They will bless you. Thank you.